back to World Changers. My name is Steven. In this podcast, we go over the lives of the greatest men and women who have ever lived and what they did to change the world. Today, we're going to be talking about Karl Marx, the founder of communism and Marxism. He, We've done uh, Mao Zedong, and we just did Joseph Stalin. And what we've kind of learned along the way is that they were both inspired by this man, Karl Marx. So I thought fitting that we could do him now and see how exactly he lived his life and what he brought to the world that caused you know, some of the greatest revolutions in history and some of the worst events in human history to happen as well. Okay, let's jump right in. So Karl Heinrich Heinrich. Marx was born in Prussia on May 5th, 1818. He was born uh, one of nine children, born to Heinrich and Heinrietta Marx in Trier, Prussia. His dad was a successful lawyer, and he loved Kant and Voltaire, uh, certain philosophers that we'll talk about eventually. He was like a uh, he was pretty passionate uh, about the Prussian reform that was kind of happening around the time. And interestingly enough, uh, Karl Marx, uh, both his parents were Jewish and they had rabbinical ancestry. So they were kind of, they came from a long line of uh, Judaism. His father, though, converted to Christianity in 1816 at the age of 35. So just two years before Karl was born. And this was probably because. Um, of a lot of prejudice and discrimination that was facing Jews at the time. Being a Jew or having Jewish background uh, was hard at this time where they were. And there were radical social policies, um, and uh, it was just a tough time to be a Jew. And so he most likely did this as a professional concession in response to a lot of different things, including uh, in 1815 they banned Jews from high society. So just a bad, bad time to be a Jew. Um, so as he converted to Christianity, his family was converted as well. And Carl was actually baptized a Lutheran rather than a Catholic. The reason they chose to be baptized, um, a Lutheran and not a Catholic was they, they thought that the Protestant movement was equated more with intellectual freedom rather than Catholicism. So, um, Karl Marx was an average student. He was educated at home until he was 12. And then he spent five years, 1830 to 1835 at the Jesuit high school in his hometown. He became an atheist though, um, and he uh, he rejected both Christian and Jewish religions. It, he, um, yeah, he just got kind of skeptical of them, and uh, he actually coined the saying, religion is the opium of the people, which is like a basic principle of modern communism, which he went on to write. But yeah, he just did not really like religion very much. Um, so in October 1835, he ends up studying at the University of Bonn. Uh, his dad wanted him to become a lawyer, but he was more interested in philosophy and literature rather than law. And he actually wanted to be a poet at a time um, or a dr- dr- dramatist. I don't know how to say this. Someone who uh, writes plays, dramatist. In his student days, uh, he actually wrote a bunch of poetry. And a lot of it we have today. Later on in his life, he kind of recognized it as being imitative and unremarkable so he wasn't a very good poet but while he was at college he was pretty lively and rebellious 
He took uh, an enthusiastic part in student life, and he was there for two semesters. He was actually in prison for drunkenness and disturbing the peace. He incurred debts. He even participated in a duel, which is freaking nuts. Um, but his dad was like really bummed that he was just kind of wasting his life. So his dad insisted that he enroll in a more serious university, University of Berlin. So there in Berlin, he actually studied law and philosophy. And he was introduced to the philosopher G.W.F. Hegel, is I think how it's pronounced. And uh, he'd been a professor at, at Berlin. Um, and uh, he was a professor until 1831, so just recently, until uh, a couple years before Marx, uh, Karl got there. And he proposed big ideas. Uh, one in particular was what determined the path of a society of human civilization just kind of like society and how it worked and fit within everyone and um, Marx didn't love him at first uh, but soon he became involved with the young Hegelians it's like a radical group of students and uh, they would criticize the political and religious establishments of the day so he just kind of became this political revolutionary was inspired by this this late professor Um, eventually after he finishes he goes to Paris and he the rest of his life, he's just kind of a journalist, right? So he's just kind of bouncing around from city to city, writing stuff. And sometimes he writes stuff that's uh, controversial for one reason or another, and he kind of gets kicked out of the city. So he goes to France. He starts uh, this political journal called Dusch Frankostisch Schachbrücke, German, French, uh, and else. Um, and it was only made one publish, and uh, but then it was, it just kind of ended. But he, um, while he was there, he met his uh, a collaborator and soon-to-be lifelong friend that literally kept him alive at some points, Frederick Engels, and they just it was uh, probably one of two most important people in his entire life, and uh, they just really hit it off, and they would you know criticize different philosophies and you know economies, and uh, they started working on things together. They actually published something they collaborated on called the Holy Family. Later that year, though, Marx moved to Belgium after being expelled from France for writing another radical newspaper. Vorwarts? Don't know what that means, but that's what it was called. And uh, it had strong ties to an organization that later became the Communist League. So, like, all these kind of little pockets of revolutionaries are kind of being uh, started in different areas, and he's kind of a catalyst for a lot of these. He's you know, explaining a lot of their thoughts, putting them down on paper. And so he gets kicked out of France. So he goes to Brussels, and in Brussels he actually gets introduced to socialism. And uh, so then at this point he kind of breaks off from the young Hegelians, right? And he starts kind of putting things together on his own. And uh, in 1846 he founded the Communist Correspondence Committee. And he wanted to kind of link socialists around Europe, right? Because there was not a lot of them, but there were pockets of them. And uh, in 1847, him and Engels, his, his really good friend, they wrote Manifest der Kommunistischen Partei, Manifesto of the Communist Party, uh, which became the Communist Manifesto, which is one of the, I think, the most read pamphlet maybe ever. Uh, it wasn't a book, it was a pamphlet. And so they published that in 1848, and then he was expelled out of Belgium. And uh, so he's just kind of bouncing around. Eventually, uh, he tried to go to France. They got rid of him. He went back to Prussia. They got rid of him. He went to London, and they kind of let him stay, but he didn't have citizenship. So he just kind of like sort of lived there as not a citizen. And the rest of his life living in London, 
he uh, he's just writing stuff. Um, he worked for the New York Daily Tribune, which is kind of cool, for 10 years. But he didn't earn very much money. He, he founded the German Workers Education Society as well as a new headquarters for the Communist League. And um, So he's just kind of hanging out there. He Later in his life around this period, he becomes more focused on capitalism and economic theory. And we're going to kind of dive into his beliefs that inspired these other men later. But he published the first volume of Das Kapital, which a lot of people call the Bible for the working class. And what's interesting is he was spending a lot of time at the British Museum, and in preparation for writing Das Kapital, he read every available work in economic and financial theory and practice. The rest of his life, he kind of spent writing and re- revising manuscripts and additional volumes that he never completed. And uh, later, after he died, uh, you know, the other parts of this book were actually uh, finished by Angus, his friend. And while he was there living in London, I, we mentioned he wasn't getting a lot of money as a journalist. Angus would actually send him money. I think the total ended up being like over $30,000 over the course of his life that kept him alive. Like he almost starved. But he dies uh, in London March 14th, which is today. Wow, that's pretty cool. It is the 14th of March. Uh, 1883, and uh, he has a big stone, um, large tombstone with a bust of Marx, and the stone in it is etched the last line of the Communist Manifesto, workers of all lands unite. So, and then just to kind of jump into his family a little bit, he was married to his childhood sweetheart, Jenny von Westphalen, who was known as the most beautiful girl in Trier, his hometown. And she was totally devoted to him. She died of cancer cancer in 1881, so two years before he died, um, which was a blow which, from which he never recovered. And they had seven children. Um, four died in infancy or childhood, but he had some daughters, and he loved them. And, he, uh, and they loved him. And of the three surviving daughters, they all married Frenchmen, and his son-in-laws became prominent French socialists and members of parliament, so... The two people that mostly affected his life um, was his wife, Jenny von Westphalen, and Engels, his, his good friend that you know wrote stuff with him and collaborated with him, but also uh, kept him alive at the end of his life and kind of funded his mind you know, and had him write these things. Okay, let's kind of jump in, and today we're going to talk a little bit about his legacy and his works, his ideas. So we just went over... Carl's life, but we kind of really want to talk about his legacy and his works, what he really taught, because his life on on the surface looks boring, you know? He was just this poor guy who was a journalist who kind of wrote some stuff and then he died. But what he wrote really changed the world. So the central idea in Marx's thought involves two basic notions. First, that the economic system at any given time determines the current ideas, and that the history is an ongoing process keeping up with the economic institutions that change in regular stages. That's a little bit thick. Um, Pretty much what he believed is we aren't free, okay? We need food and shelter, and these are natural constraints. Uh, An example I've heard is a hummingbird, if you dropped it in the middle of a forest, it would go on living. It would find a way to live. If you dropped a human in the middle of a forest, it would most likely die, right? And so we... We don't adapt to nature, we change it. And this change, he called it labor, okay, which is a key term for him. Now, at the very beginning, back when we were kind of savages or, you know, uh, 
kind of hunter and gatherers we he called that primitive communism where everyone kind of say uh shared everything and everyone was kind of equal we we're just like in a tribe and everyone worked together you know and um and it was fair i mean we didn't have total freedom um i mean they were surviving but um wasn't completely free and you compare that to the next step which is feudalism which was happening uh, in europe right around marx's time and in feudalism, the nobility kind of did nothing. The peasants would labor and they would farm and they'd have all this surplus food, but it wasn't evenly distributed. The nobility would get it. And th that wasn't a natural constraint. That was a social one, right? So the fact that the peasants were starving and not having a lot of food was because the nobility was taking. It was because of an economic structure, a flawed social system or a, a flawed labor structure. Now, economy is the organization of labor. So we talk about all these economies, the economy of America, the economy of Japan. He saw those as just how labor is organized. And feudalism was not good, right? It wasn't evenly distributed, and the nobility were doing nothing and kind of reaping the rewards. After feudalism uh, comes capitalism, and he really did not like capitalism. Uh, he thought uh, surplus in capitalism is called profit, and he thought that was theft. He thought profit was a fancy term for exploitation and uh, which is really interesting idea to be honest I mean if you think about it his, what he's saying is uh, you it costs you 10 cents to make this pencil and you're selling it to me for 50 cents that is theft you should sell it to me for what it is you know and so his biggest thing is something called conflict theory right so in capitalism it's an economic system uh, made where, where private or corporate people own uh, they have the ownership of goods. So few people on the top, and he saw it as the poor stay poor and the rich stay rich. Right? That's how he sees capitalism. And he sees it as the last stage of historical development before communism. So we talked about you know, primitive communism, then feudalism, then capitalism. So he thinks capitalism is like the next the, the, the step um, right before communism. And uh, so what I said about conflict theory is um, you've probably heard these terms, the um, oh, it's a hard one to say. There's the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. It's bourgeoisie, I think is how you say it. Anyways, um, these are the two people that are kind of uh, fighting together, right? And he thinks that they're fated to be in conflict in this class struggle, um, which he wrote in the Communist, Communist Manifesto. And he thinks that ultimately the lower class will win. And uh, so the bourgeoisie are the capitalist and the proletariat are the working class. And um, so he kind of sees this as there's these people on top, you know, holding you down. And there's these people down here that are kind of treated like almost like slaves and they're working and it's unfair. And um, what he said, like we mentioned, you know, um, workers unite, you know, what was the exact phrase? Um workers of all lands unite right so he was pretty much saying hey all you guys were working in the factories and this factory owner he's just kind of you know reaping the rewards of your labor and you kind of have to do this labor to survive and he's paying you nothing you can barely even survive you can uh, revolt and take over and what we're going to try to strive for is a, a, a point where everything is shared in uh, communion Right? So it's a community. Everything is the same for everyone, which is where the word uh, communism comes from. Communally, communally owned. 
And, um, and so this is kind of what he talked about. And he said eventually the proletariat would rise above. They would form a, dicta- a dictatorship, which would turn into communism. Right? So those are kind of the steps. They revolt. There's a uh, proletarian dictatorship that turns into communism. And then there's no classes and there's no inequalities. And, uh, and then what people say is that history comes to an end, which kind of sounds rid- ridiculous. Um, but his message of this earthly paradise, this classless society, has provided millions of people with hope and a new meaning of life. It just sounds so good, you know? And from this point of view, a lot of people agree. Uh, actually, there's this Austrian uh, economist, Joseph A. Schumpeter, and he said that Marxism is a religion and Marx is its prophet, right? So he's kind of, he's telling people about this future. Like, listen, you're, you're working all day. You're working eight to eight in this factory, terrible living conditions. You're making pennies and this guy's reaping all the rewards. If you rise above, we can make a society where everyone is equal and we just work hard and distribute all of these things together. So that's pretty much, pretty much, um, his main gist he also thought that capitalism was bad not just because a few rich were on top kind of suppressing the poor but he thinks it takes away our freedom he thinks that working takes away our freedom and it makes us value possessions makes us see relationships as a way to money he thinks being unemployed uh is something we should strive for he thinks feminists got it wrong uh, in the 1900s where they said we want to work like men he he thought you're being enslaved like men what it should be is men have the right as do women to enjoy leisure and so it's kind of weird you know um but yeah so in summary the communist manifesto asserted that all human history had been based on class struggles but these would ultimately disappear with the victory of the proletariat so there's always been the struggle if the workers unite and, and re- uh, revolt all of this will be gone classes will be gone we'll be in this paradise um Historians have called a lot of what he said to be inaccurate, scientifically scientifically weak, and logically ridiculous. But it still inspired, uh, you know, thousands of people, including, as we mentioned, uh, some huge countries and influential leaders, including Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong. The sad part is, in practice, communist regimes have produced the greatest ideological carnage in human history, killing more than 100 million people in the last century. So it's so interesting that this guy, his idea, his his philosophy, it feels so altruistic, you know? It feels so, uh, he just wants things to be fair. He just wants everyone to have the same amount, you know? It's kind of like we're cutting the cake and he's like, hey, Let's just all get the same piece, you know, which sounds like a good thing to want. But when you put it into practice, or at least so far, of the people who have put it into practice, it ends in the death of millions and millions of people, which is just unbelievable. Okay, let's kind of move on and go over some fun stories and facts. So Carl uh, was very good at French and Latin. And he used those to read and write fluently. Uh, later on, though, he actually learned other languages. And 
he learned uh, Spanish, Italian, Dutch, Scandinavian, Russian, and English. He actually loved Shakespeare and, and knew a lot of his works by heart. Kind of cool. When he died, he was broke, and just 11 people attended his funeral. Uh, we talked about his wife, uh, Jenny. She was actually an aristocrat, which is so interesting because his whole philosophy was about these class struggles, and there was a huge uh, differential between him and his wife. And, uh, yeah, she was the daughter of a high-ranking Prussian noble. But she was amazing. She had the patience of a saint. And she kind of just followed him around Europe as, she, as he was getting expelled from one country after the other and having seven children at the time. And he even had an illegitimate child with their housekeeper. And she was still um, just faithful and awesome the whole time. Uh, Marx's mother uh, was from a family of Dutch industrialists who went on to establish the Philips Electronics Company, which is kind of interesting. And also, uh, while he was in exile in London, he relied on loans from a rich uncle who had his own tobacco company. So kind of funny that he's relying on these people who are using capitalism and, and making money and these capitalism-funded uh, communism, which is pretty interesting. Okay, let's move on and go over some fun quotes. History repeats, repeats itself, first as a tragedy, second as a farce. Let the ruling classes tremble at a communist revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. Social progress can be measured by the, uh, the social position of the female sex. That's pretty cool. The theory of communism may be summed up in one sentence. Abolish all private property. The production of too many useful things results in too many useless people. Democracy is the road to socialism. The only antidote to mental suffering is physical pain. The meaning of peace is the absence. Wait, the meaning of peace is the absence of opposition to so socialism. Wow, that's interesting. The history of all previous societies has been the history of class struggles. Necessity is blind until it becomes conscious. Freedom is the consciousness of necessity. The rich will do anything for the poor, but get off their backs. Drop their backs, man. Reason has always existed, but not always in a reasonable form. The first requisite for the happiness of the people is the abolition of religion. Dang. That's, uh, that's pretty hardcore. Revolutions are the locomotives of history. All right, now let's just do one more. <clears throat> the ruling ideas of each age have ever been the ideas of its ruling class. Pretty cool. Okay, let's kind of end this uh, off with our last section and just talk about why we think he was great. I think this is probably the easiest guy to talk about why he was so influential. I mean, we've already talked about two of his, I guess you could call them pupils, uh, people that were inspired by his works and what they did. 
and he mentioned that his works have inspired the deaths of a hundred million people in the past hundred years. Uh, so, I mean, you look at uh, all the different people we've talked about, and some of their ideologies are used or wielded in negative ways that that sometimes kills people. And uh, but none have killed as many as him, especially not in the past hundred years. So I think he had a sad, poor. Uh, miserable life full of failure Um, I don't know he obviously did not get to see the success uh, or influence of his works until I mean he never got to see him he died but it was a you know a couple decades later when it uh, influenced the Lenin and took part in the Russian Revolution which led to Joseph Stalin but yeah I think uh, hands down he's one of the most influential people we've ever done on this list Probably not for the best reason, but he changed the world. Thanks for listening to this episode of World Changers, where we went over the life of Karl Marx. Catch us next week as we go over other people who have changed the world. Thanks. Bye.